Hello and welcome to episode 240 of the Waters Wave Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Wei Shen, and this week, well, my usual co-host, Tony Malikin, is actually out for the week seeing family in North Carolina. Um, but instead, I have a guest for this week, and joining me is Chris Hopkins, Head of Capital Markets for Asia Pacific at SBI Digital Markets. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, great. How are things uh, looking up in Singapore or, or in looking in? <laughs> looking in Singapore, not uh, not too bad. I mean, it's uh, you know it's a mixture of frustration, um, misery, and uh, and boredom. <laughs> pretty much the the three kind of main areas. But uh, compared to other countries and uh, and, and cities, it's uh, it, it's not bad at all. So. You know, it's it's just an annoyance, but uh, you know they're very keen on keeping everyone safe, and uh, you know mm. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, but I guess it could also be very confusing depending on how, uh, like rules keep changing all the time, right? Or more like recommendations keep changing all the time, and then obviously yeah. in different countries, different, uh, yeah, different ones. Well, I, I think that's by design here. I mean, they make it so uh, confusing that I think people just don't bother going out rather than, uh, you know, fall foul of, of breaking one of the rules. Uh, it's just easier not to do anything and stay at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> That's what I did most of last year when I was in Hong Kong. Hmm. Okay, well, today I actually wanted to talk to you about uh, digital assets. And, you know, I, I know you've spent quite a few years working at, you know, various different banks and uh, within the traditional finance space, you know, before joining SBI Digital. So perhaps if you could walk us through, you know, what, what made you decide on the change and, and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, SBI? Sure. So the, I mean, the, the you know, the, the career that I've had is pretty much an evolution of, of trading in itself. I started out uh, as a 15-year-old doing a, a mini uh, internship on the open outcry trading floor of, uh, of, of the London Futures Exchange. And, uh, you know, usually when you're doing those kind of roles uh, as, as part of a mini internship, you're buying lunches and, and coffees for, for the traders and the uh, the staff there, and I think I obviously did very well at buying people lunch, and uh, they <laughs> offered me a full time role. Um, you know, as soon as I turned legal. So at 17, I joined the company. Um, I qualified as an options trader, and I was working mm. in the trading pits of London. And electronic trading uh, back in those days was, you know, really not on many people's radars. They had uh, they had a an imaginatively uh, titled automatic or automated pit trading uh, function, which was e-trading after the pit hours had finished. And, uh, you know, there's there's some very uh, famous stories about traders talking through the mouse, trying to place orders. You know, there was just no knowledge or uh, idea about how to electronically execute uh, business in those days. So I went up. I went up to the uh, the, the trading desks in uh, in London and was trading German government bond derivatives. And uh, you know, not long after that, I moved out to Asia. And then, um, ironically, given that the trading floors in, in London had shut down, uh, I moved on to the Singapore version. So you know, I kind of knew the grains of sand were starting to tick away. And uh, 
you know, it was just a matter of time of, uh, you know, getting out of there before that died. And it, that, that kind of is a microcosm of, of where I kind of feel that the banking side is going at the moment. It's, uh, you know, it's always trying to stay one step ahead and, and stay relevant in a, in a very fast paced and uh, very quick to change digital world. Mm. So how do you see that evolving now, particularly as, you know, uh, digital assets, which does include cryptocurrency, you know, um, are, you know, seeping more and more into the capital markets? Well, it, it's, I mean, there's there's two ways of looking at it, really. You, you have, you know, you have uh, an environment now where rates have been low for a very long time. People are finding it very hard to make uh you know, make money from trading revenues. Um, and they look at alternative markets. They look at where the volatility is and, uh, you know, they just try to find new areas and, and new markets to get involved in where they can capture that, uh, you know, that that revenue growth and, and that trading performance. So crypto markets are a natural kind of evolution for the, the kind of trading world. Um, but the interesting thing I find at the moment is the two worlds are very much at odds with each other. You have those, you know, those kind of crypto founders that it's it's a very kind of social movement. Um, they're almost like crypto evangelists, and uh, and then you have your traditional kind of banking people coming in, and the two the two worlds are colliding. But uh, I think inevitably banks uh, or other kind of financial services firms are going to have to look into this space um, not just from the trading perspective but from a you know from across the the settlements the the, the whole kind of back office infrastructure and, and that's where blockchain kind of comes in as an efficient cheaper um, in theory more kind of scalable for a business uh, you know on the solution side so it's it, it's it's almost like the evolution of trading itself. You know, we went from trading floor, uh, which I mentioned I kind of started in, and I know you had John Lynn uh, on a you know a few months back, and and he came from that same yeah. universe. And you move upstairs and you start to trade electronically in markets, but you know you didn't have any algorithms at that point. And then you start to kind of bring in algorithmic trading, and and the whole thing is just a a natural evolution. Uh, and and this. You know this new kind of asset class uh, these new technologies will at some point have to uh, ingrain themselves into the the, the, the more uh, traditional institutions okay um okay so then what made you actually you know move to you know working at sbi digital markets and maybe walk me through how you thought about that you know coming from that traditional background even though you you know you started from the trading pits and then moved on to you you've seen the change from like from the open outcry floors to electronic trading uh and algo trading at that you know so now moving into the digital asset space like why did you choose why did you decide to you know join sbi well after being in the banks for almost 20 years and, and always trying to stay nimble and, and ahead and trying to reinvent myself uh, within that same industry the the axe still you know finally came i managed to dodge it for <laughs> for the best part of 20 years but i still got that dreaded phone call you know to go down to a a floor in the office that i'd never been into before and uh you know when you walk through the door there's the lady from hr sitting there and uh the guy that hired as you initially and 
gloom all over their face and then you get that dreaded uh, due to an organization restructure your role's no longer required and uh, it was it was a big shock and uh, after the shock wore off it, it took you know I took some time to spend with the family um, took a hard long look at myself and, and what I wanted to do going forward and after taking that hard long look after you know maybe three or four months I still had no idea what I wanted to do and I looked around in in Singapore uh, where I'm based the you know the areas that are really kind of booming are the digital asset uh, areas so mostly on the crypto side but crypto's booming ESG related stuff's booming um, on the FX side, you know, people who are, are moving their matching engines into Singapore, and they were the main kind of areas that uh, that seemed to be kind of being areas that the MAS and, and the local kind of government are looking to push in Singapore, and also where there just seems to have a, a feel of growth around it and not that kind of stagnant, stale um, banking experience that, that the job has really kind of turned into these days. You know, for a long time now, and, and I'm sure you, you've heard the same from other people you've had on, working in a bank really does feel pretty stale, pretty joyless, and every year you're trying to squeeze more uh, out of your clients with less resource, less headcount, and uh, they've just invested so much in legacy systems that the ability to innovate has has really been stifled, and it just simply ceased being enjoyable. And uh, it was at that kind of point, it was almost like an intervention, I guess, where I was kind of looking at the the doom of where I'd come from and spent my entire life, and uh, an SBI came along and. You know, SBI are a huge Japanese financial conglomerate. Um, they were founded amid the uh, internet boom of the late 90s uh, as part of SoftBank. And they're already an established business. They have an established rates, uh, FX, equities, insurance and, and banking businesses. And their name is synonymous with fintech and, uh, and with trust. And when I look at this whole digital asset ecosystem, that's the one thing that, that really is needed. It's the trust. And it's missing from a lot of the, uh, you know, the relationships. And there's just this big gray area across a number of aspects of that landscape. And for me, SBI came in. They wanted to set up a digital markets entity here in Singapore to face institutional clients. And uh, you know, it wasn't a hard decision to make. They're strategically invested across the digital asset ecosystem. They're, they're invested in fact, they were early investors in Ripple. Uh, they're invested in R3. They've got an investment uh, stake in the Swiss digital bank Signum, as an example. And it's the depth and breadth of those partnerships and the alliances that are really going to, in my opinion, shape this landscape for years to come. So it was a no-brainer for me. And I think just the last one, I don't want to <laughs> don't want to seem to be kind of plugging the uh, the, the firm, but SBI are regulated in Japan, and, and we're embracing that regulation in Singapore as well. We're, we're applying for a license here for my entity, and uh, I think that's going to be key in winning the hearts and the minds of financial institutions when it comes time for them to seek partners and, and solutions in this particular space. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Um, so maybe walk me through uh, what your remit as uh, uh, 
um, as head of capital markets for SBI Digital Means. Um, what uh, in how are you approaching? Uh, I guess new clients. You know, what are some of the uh, the issues that you think are currently hindering um, capital markets firms from getting more involved in digital assets? Uh, which also, you know, it it does. It's not only about crypto. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's not. It's not all about crypto at all. I mean, digital mm. assets, in essence, are a basket of, of different asset classes that are enabled by a, a common technology, and uh, they're cryptographically secured on a on a DLT. So it's it's not all about crypto. And and but that is the challenge, I think, in some part, is people think it is all about crypto, um, and it's really not the case. And I think that outside of that kind of whole roller coaster that is crypto trading and that rabbit hole of, of DeFi, you have another angle uh, that will be popping up on people's radars, and that's going to be uh, asset tokenization. And that is where things get a little bit older world. So this is where the kind of the two worlds collide, because it's, you know, it's effectively a blockchain token that represents a physical tradable asset. And, and those Assets can be things like bonds or or equities, for example, or it could be something a little more exciting like real estate or uh, even wine. Uh, you know, I've seen and, and had many conversations around the tokenization of wine or art, uh, mm. for example. And I think that that is where things become more compelling um, for your traditional kind of asset managers and, and corporates. And uh, the hedge funds are all very much looking at the crypto. Uh, space at the moment because there's there's volatility, there's profits to be had from the trading, there's money to be made from the DeFi, and you know the nature of hedge funds are to you know to go after that kind of that potential source of uh, you know revenue generation or trading profits, whatever you want to call it. But the more kind of sober, um, slower to move organisations, they'll be more compelled towards those assets that are already regulated and in the case of uh, STOs they are securities and here in Singapore they're regulated by the uh, the MAS so it's yeah. it's a lesser battle for them to kind of start looking at these type of things than it would be to you know start trading in bitcoin or ethereum for example as as actual kind of part of the portfolio okay where would you see the digital asset landscape in, in Singapore, uh, how does that compare to other countries within the region, say Hong Kong or Japan or even Australia? I think everyone is looking at it very differently. Mm. You know, I, I talked to a number of people up in Hong Kong and uh, it, I think the fears around the crypto side are from the regulator perspective are the same, but Singapore do seem to be a little bit more embraceive. And, and we just had the announcement just this week of uh, one of the first crypto licenses being granted. Um, you know, that was a big move uh, down here in Singapore. Uh, there's been a lot of talk over the last six months about the number of applications in to do kind of crypto related businesses. And, you know, this license was the the, the first kind of public headline grabber that uh, you know that shows that Singapore are open to having a, a safe um, responsible crypto landscape but I think that from the angle that I'm kind of looking at at the moment the the STO angle 
securities are regulated by the MAS and it just gives people and organizations a wider range of investment opportunities to to you know look into so um I, I guess the simple way of looking at it from the securities angle it's just going to be the reformatting of existing products as i mentioned bonds and equities um, or uh, real estate into that kind of tokenized form and one of the main benefits of tokenization is is the ability to fractionalize you can actually split the asset into smaller tradable uh, fractions in the form of these tokens and that basically allows for fractional ownership among different investors uh, it even opens up investment opportunities for people who wouldn't ordinary uh, ordinarily have the opportunity to do so so if you think about a painting for example right that's mm -hmm. a, a good example of that i mean not everyone's going to be able to own a, a particular masterpiece but if it's digitalized and broken up into tokens then you know, anyone can buy a, a fraction of that uh, of that asset and it just opens up the world to um, or it opens up the investment world to a lot more people, a lot more organizations and at lower, um, you know, lower barriers than uh, than they're used to in traditional in the traditional sense. Okay, how would that impact the institutional investment investing community? So, because that obviously opens, uh, yeah, fractionalization opens it up to, uh, you know, including uh, perhaps people from the retail side also coming in, right? Um, that we yeah, weren't able to invest in some of these um, assets before. So, what what does that mean for the institutions? Well, for them, it depends how nimble. Um, you know how nimble they are to to adapt and to change and as i mentioned earlier a lot of money has been poured into the legacy systems in in a lot of the institutions right so mm -hmm. there's going to be a spend to to go to a level where you can be able to provide services and solutions that are on blockchain or or otherwise um, for clients but the bigger firms are probably only interested in dealing on the bigger ticket items with their bigger uh, clients, but it's the smaller firm, the smaller firms that have that kind of local reach um, mm. into the you know the local retail markets that that will likely benefit a great deal from this. It's you know change is coming. I mean, there's 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 no two ways about it. And outside of the kind of trading side that I mentioned, where people are seeking uh, more kind of alpha generating markets, the other side of this is going to be cutting costs. Mm. And when businesses migrate onto blockchain, it should in theory be cheaper, faster, and 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 should in theory entail lower capital requirements. It's just getting everyone to that stage. And if the you know if the if the machine isn't broken, and business is still transacting and everything's going fine, there's not going to be that that compulsion for institutions to move into something new. They're going to mm. potentially lose clients. You know they're going to have to to look at either strategic partnerships or doing a completely new build out of new tech uh, solutions, and there may not be the appetite to do so, but. I think the whole industry really is going to be determined by the investors and by clients, and it will be those segments that will be demanding the change. And if an institution wants to stay nimble and wants to stay relevant, 
then they will have to get involved. I mean, it's it, it really is inevitable. It's just a question of how they get involved. And what I think will happen is is that you'll see more partnership and more collaboration amongst companies and, and providers that can offer certain pieces of the puzzle. And I think the days of a, of a bank, um, for example, building everything themselves, you know, I think we're going to be seeing the, the, the kind of final uh, days of that type of model. Mm, okay. Yeah. And, and in the past year, we've actually seen, you know, yeah, some, some of those partnerships or some of those efforts being, being done, right? Like the, for example, uh, BNY Mellon is uh, is looking to you know really delve into the custody aspect of it, and you know making sure that there's interoperability there maybe down the line. Um, and then there's the likes of Senate Chart Senate Chartered and uh, Northern Trust, you know trying to build up that uh, that custody aspect of things for dig- digital assets. So in terms of SBI, maybe, um, you know, looking towards the second half of all the, the rest of this year, <laughs> we're already into well into the second half. Um, you know, what what are some plans that you have and, and what, what's in the pipeline, you know, to be to kind of like boost up your capital markets offering? Well, the, the big one for me will be uh, applying for the capital markets license. Um, you know, I mentioned that we want to embrace the, the regulation and you know, we're looking very much at the securities angle in the digital space from here. And, you know, also uh, my uh, parent company are doing a lot of development work on on digital assets across the ecosystem. One of the, the things that we're doing down here um, in conjunction with SIX, who are the uh, Swiss stock exchange group, is mm-hmm. we're working to build in a JV. We're working to build a, an Asia uh, digital exchange here in Singapore. Um, one of the challenges for the security tokenization uh, is liquidity, and SBI are, are working at a you know pretty much a global level to try and address that particular gap. And we've got this JV here in Singapore um, to build the uh, Asia Digital Exchange here. Uh, we also have ties in Europe to Bourse Stuttgart digital exchange over in Germany. And then we are um, also planning a digital securities exchange in Osaka uh, in association with another strong uh, Japanese name. So, you know, again, that talks to the partnerships and the collaboration. And, you know, we really are trying to to build a liquidity corridor um, for that secondary market of, uh, of, of the tokens that are getting issued and then listed. Okay. There's there's a lot. Uh, if, if you could expand a little bit more on that liquidity issue, I mean, tell me what exactly is the challenge there for liquidity, and why, and and what will I guess what what needs to happen to address that uh, appropriately? Well, let let's take for example the well, let's use a bond for an example. So a company who wants to raise money can do it through bonds or equities. And, and this goes on today. It's a very busy, um, uh, big segment. Companies are now going to be able to issue bonds through STOs. Um, mm-hmm. In theory, it should be cheaper, should be more efficient. Um, with the, you know, the advent of smart contracts, things like corporate actions and uh, coupon payments, everything can be kind of packaged up and uh, you're stripping out a lot of layers which will make the whole deal a lot cheaper. But you know, the, the issue that you'll then have is it's all very well tokenizing something, but if you can't sell out of that token, 
um, you know, at a point where you need to, then what's the point in having it? And that's where that kind of liquidity issue comes in. Uh, it's it's making sure that, that there are quality venues for secondary market listing and that there is liquidity there and that liquidity hours are um, are there for when people need them. It, it's a challenge for, for everybody that, that's involved in this space because there isn't much of a secondary market, but it's, uh, it's one of those kind of chicken and egg things. You have to build it and, uh, and people will come. Uh, it's just takes a while for, you know, things to kind of build and mature and develop. And, uh, a lot of people kind of involve market makers to make sure that there's liquidity coming in. And it's it's something that all exchanges listing any new product face, whether it's in the uh, traditional world or whether it's in the digital world. Um, and, and that's going to be something that, uh, you know, the industry will need to kind of look at and to address. The other the other big thing that is is one of the major challenges is, is the lack of education. Uh, in this space, you know, there's a lot of talk about crypto. There's a lot of gray area around regulation, and and that makes institutional players very nervous. They like certainty. They like to know um, exactly what it is that uh, you know they're getting into. Uh, and and the landscape is very very opaque in, in some cases. So a lot's known about crypto. A lot's known about DeFi. Um, it, I mentioned earlier crypto being a big social movement as well. So there's a whole generation of people growing up on crypto. They know exactly uh, what it is. They know exactly what DeFi can offer. But a lot of the old institutions and the the people who work inside them, they don't. You know, they see the headlines. They see the scammers. They see the, uh, you know, exchange uh, founders running off with, billions of dollars of people's money and it just makes everyone very very uncomfortable so getting that level of education out there um you know getting in front of people being very vocal and and clear around how things are structured uh the benefits the savings these are going to be the the key areas of uh, uh of, of focus for you know not just my group but for everyone who who wants to get involved in this particular area. Mm, okay. Uh, earlier you mentioned you know you you were talking about how uh, you know some firms are obviously viewing blockchain as a cheaper solution in terms of maybe you know how it's dealt with on the settlement side, um, and clearly there have been institutions that are heavily involved in this. I mean, for example, we have the ASX who's trying to do that chest replacement project. That's right, yeah. Um, and others also using that to perhaps drive uh, towards, uh, I mean, in, in projects to drive towards a T plus zero settlement. Uh, I, I think, um, yeah, quite a few firms doing some work there. But, you know, just taking the ASX example, uh, well, it, the ASX as an example, um, Clearly, it's it's something that is hard to get off the ground uh, properly. I mean, it's taken a long time and obviously it's a huge project. So it is understandable that it will take time, but it is still it still faces a lot of hurdles. Right. So just in your opinion, I mean, how would you how should institutional firms like approach these type of projects? Um, and and I guess it is also in line with how they will approach digital assets. 
I, I think they need to develop the mindset of not doing everything themselves and not having the entire pie to themselves. What you're seeing in the digital asset landscape is a lot of collaboration, a lot of people genuinely working with each other to, to provide certain solutions for certain things. And, you know, I think if you try to do everything yourself, um, AXX, you meant ASX, you mentioned is a huge project, but by the time everything's done, there's probably going to be the next version out there and uh, they're already going to be behind the curve once they finish doing this. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of coming from that traditional background and have that mentality that, well, why would I partner with this guy when he can just go ahead and do what I want to do and cut me out of the picture? Um, <laughs> but you can't have that mentality anymore. I mean, this isn't this isn't the traditional space. This is a new frontier. The technology is very, very new and is changing so quickly. Um, I've only been in this space for just over two months and I thought things were moving quickly before I came in and, and now I have come into this this space. Things are moving at a frightening pace and it's it's just going to be incredibly hard to to keep up with some of it. So forming strategic partnerships with uh, with with companies such as myself or um, you know some of the other providers out there, if you're working on a custody piece, for example, um, partnering with wallet providers or um, the the kind of cyber uh security people or the the kyc people you, you can't do everything yourself anymore you need to partner you need to be strategic in your uh your thinking and ultimately it's going to save you money rather than start to just repeat the whole you know traditional process of building everything yourself and just keep throwing more money on it by upgrading it every two three years and then eventually 10 years from now end up in a place that looks very much like it does today, where your systems are obsolete and uh, and you need to you know go out there and, and and repeat the whole process all over again. So it needs to be scalable, and uh, that's why I think partnering and uh, you know forming your strategic kind of alliances and uh, and working smart is going to be the way that many of these organisations are going to have to go because it it really is going to take some heavy lifting um, for firms looking to get involved in the space, whether it be on the technology side, the security side, the back office operations, and even on the documentation side, right? I mean, you look at a hedge fund, um, they have their IMA, their investment management agreement that doesn't contain crypto for a lot of them. So they're going to have to tear that up and you know, formulate new new documents and agreements. And uh, that's just one example of, of things that are going to have to happen. So it's, you know, it's a very intensive space and to do it alone is, is going to be, uh, I think, very difficult. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, in just in terms of that mindset change, do you really, uh, this, I mean, it is happening, maybe not at a pace that's fast enough, but how do you see that changing? Is is this year going to, do you see this year being the year that, uh, you know, more and more capital markets firms like wake up and say, yeah, I think we need to get involved in this uh, and uh, let's see how we can do that. Uh, let's see who we, we can partner for this or uh, if they want to, if they actually want to build it themselves, you know, um, wh where where do you see things going? 
Well, I think you are already seeing it happening in, in some way, shape or form. On the crypto side, you have a number of banks now offering clients uh, Bitcoin, for example, via derivatives. So you have people that can't trade what I would call native crypto, but they can trade things like Grayscale or they can trade Bitcoin futures listed on the CME exchange. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're already doing some aspects of it. So it is already on the radar, uh, but it depends on on who's running the business. And, and if you know, if you're smart about things, you'll realize that things are changing, that more and more investors and institutions are starting to add elements of this into their their models and their projections. And you're either going to be on the dock waving the boat off or you're going to be on the boat you know, sailing off into the into the sunset, in, into the brave new world. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think it really has to be driven by clients and investors, and it will be their voices that will uh, will spur these organisations on. And I think the other thing as well that that needs to happen is there needs to be some sort of ceasefire between the the crypto evangelists and the non-believers. <laughs> I don't. I really don't think that helps things. Jamie Diamonds may have said, you know, four years ago that Bitcoin's rubbish and a big scam. Uh, I mean, he didn't say it exactly like that, but to, <laughs> to, to kind of use an example. But you know, three years later, J.P. Morgan are offering uh, exposure to clients. There's a huge outcry of, yeah, but Jamie Dimon said it was rubbish. But you know that that's not helpful to to the debate. Yes, you know, people can change their minds. Um, you know, people can think that uh, a product isn't great. And then once some time has been spent looking at it, once the liquidity comes in, you know, once there's a historical kind of charts building up, then I think organizations should be able to change their minds. And it, again, JP Morgan are responsible to their shareholders. Mm. And they're responsible to their clients and investors. And if their clients and investors demand access to uh, digital assets and the bank can provide them safely and, and in a responsible way, then you know, they should be applauded for, for making that change. But that's, that's where we're at, right? It's a huge social movement. And uh, there's a fun side to crypto, the, you know, the, the, the rocket ship emojis and the laser beam eyes, but Jamie Dimon's not gonna laser beam his eyes. And uh, you know, I'm not gonna put rocket ships on any of, of, of my communication that I put out, but there's a place for everything. And I think the two kind of universes need to uh, need to harmonize a little bit more for the overall success of the uh, uh, you know of the landscape. So collide in a gentler way, you mean? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I said ceasefire earlier, so uh, <laughs> you know, I just think both sides have have viewpoints that are merited, um, mm. but everyone needs to come together, I think, and and. You know, as much as the evangelists would like crypto to be their own thing and, and, you know, down with the governments, move away from that side, decentralized is the way to go. You know, I think from their perspective, they need to realize as well that, you know, the institutions which have got huge wallets behind them, I don't mean wallets in the digital sense, I mean, you know, in terms of the, of the money behind them, when yeah. they come into this space, they will demand regulation. 
they'll demand a tightening of, uh, you know, of, of what's going on. And I think that that's only going to be for the betterment of this whole, um, you know, this whole landscape. I really do. Mm, okay, that, that's interesting. And uh, definitely keen to hear more about, uh, you know, especially when uh, SBI and SIX actually kicks off the uh, the joint venture that you have together and, and see what, uh, you know, you guys come up with um, down the line. Um, but I, I think this has been really good, Chris. It's, uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about this and we'll be sure to get you on again next time. Thank you very much for having me.